We are um, almost done with our Coming of the Comforter series. This is part five. We're, we've got one more section of it next week. Um, and hopefully this has been a blessing to you. Hopefully the study of it has been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me. I don't know. Sometimes I pick these uh, sermon topics simply because I know I need them. And so thanks for coming along the journey with me. All right. <laughs> So we're going to do the coming of the comforter. And, you know, we've talked about the promise of the spirit, like just kind of thinking back to when we started back in, uh, I think it was the beginning of July. We've talked about the promise of the spirit, conditions for receiving the Holy Spirit. We've even talked about the reign of the Holy Spirit, this prophetic picture of the early reign and the latter reign and praying for that latter reign. You know, and along the way, we've kind of we've kind of picked up here and there what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And maybe the Holy Spirit and his activity in your life and mine is something that's so familiar that we don't really need a study of it, but maybe it actually is something that we need a refresher on. And so today and next week, what we're going to do is we're going to give a greater focus to that simple question, what does the Holy Spirit actually do in my life? You know, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? And I, I'll be honest with you, we probably won't do an exhaustive study of those things uh, in the time frame of this week and next week. But we're going to do our best. Maybe a related question to that is, how do I know when the Holy Spirit is actually working in my life? And that, that's kind of a cognate to that. You know, it's a related question where we're saying, do I have evidences? Oh, thank you. Do I, have, do I know if there are evidences in my life when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, that's what we're seeking after. And so um, that's what we're going to study. Let's go to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. This is where we're going to start from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. If you get to the front cover, you haven't gone far enough. All right, Genesis chapter 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. What is the Holy Spirit doing in my life when he is in my life? If I'm seeking to be filled with the Spirit, what do I expect him to do? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. You know verse 1, maybe. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Praise the Lord. In the beginning, God did it. No questions about it. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So if you're just kind of drawing up the mental imagery here, there's nothing. It's a blank canvas, completely just absent of any detail. But notice the rest of verse 2, and the who? The Spirit of God was doing what? What does your Bible say? Hovering. Yeah, that's what mine says. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I don't know, yeah, if you're like me, you kind of start playing a, a, a mental movie in your mind. Maybe you've got even some background music of some strings, just some, some suspenseful texture, ambiance, or whatever. Um, but what do you picture here? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I'll be honest with you. In my mental image, I've just kind of got this like nothingness, this electricity, this almost like a force. But I would submit to you that the Bible isn't painting a picture of the Holy Spirit as some impersonal power. The Bible is actually doing something very intentional about painting the picture of the Spirit as a personal and very intimate person of the Godhead. Why do I say this? Because that word hover is only used two other times in scripture. One of them is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And notice how the Old Testament uses this idea of hovering. 
It says, as an eagle stirs up its nest. This is Deuteronomy. So this is where Moses is talking to the children of Israel just before they're, they're entering into the promised land. So he's reminding them of them, or he's reminding them of what God has been doing for them, how God brought them out of Egypt. Like, a, like an eagle bears its young on its wings, okay? So he's drawing on this idea of God carrying his people. And then he says in verse 11, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. Speaking of Israel. All right, this is really interesting. Here, the Bible is using this idea of hovering as the activity of a tender, caring eagle for its young. And that is a picture of God hovering, caring for his people. That's you and me. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, we're not to, to feel this faceless, cold sense of God's presence. No, He is there personally and intimately. From the very beginning, the Holy Spirit is depicted as being intimately involved, not just proximally close, but intimately involved with creating new life where before there was nothing. Okay? So what is the Holy Spirit's work in your life? He is there to create new life where there seemed like there was no life possible. And the way he does it is not just through some electricity. No, he does it like an eagle, like a mother who is hovering over her kids. That's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. He's hovering like a mother eagle over our, our nest in a very personal, intimate reality. And though invisible, he is still very personal. You follow that? Though invisible, he is still very personal. And I would say this, what's more is, though invisible, he still works very visibly. Yeah? So go with me to John chapter 3. Uh, we're still kind of warming up here. John chapter 3, this is our, our little introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit. So we know, as a general rule, whenever the Holy Spirit is at work, he is doing something to create life where there was no life. And he does this in a personal way. John chapter 3, Jesus talking to a man named Nicodemus, who supposedly knows everything there is to know about Scripture, and yet he doesn't understand how new life can happen. John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. When you're there, say amen. All right, John chapter 3. I'll start in verse 5. You know, Nicodemus is just kind of starting to grapple with this. Wait, 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 born again business. What, what do you mean? How can a man enter into a mother's womb the second time? Jesus starts explaining verse 5. Jesus answered most assuredly. So I'm, I'm telling you the truth. That's what he's saying. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and what else? the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So just quick side note, if the Holy Spirit isn't creating new life in us, entrance into the kingdom of God is not even, it shouldn't even be on our radar. In fact, we can't even see the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is there to birth life and new life. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but 
cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of who? The Spirit. Here Jesus is drawing, uh, uh, so trying, trying to draw a picture for Nicodemus of what the Spirit does in our life. He rebirths us. He gives us new life, just like Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's hovering over our hearts, wanting to give us new life. And just like wind, that, yeah, you cannot see the wind, but you can definitely see what the wind does, you may not necessarily see the Holy Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit brings new life in us, oh man, you know, (laughs) you can see it. Though he's invisible, he still works very visibly. Today, the invisible, the the things the Spirit does of a more personal and intimate nature, those are the things that we want to talk about. And then next week, we're going to talk about the visible effects of that invisible activity. You follow me? Yeah. All right. So today, uh, we're, we're going to look at the invisible dynamics of what the Holy Spirit does on a personal level. And then next week, the fruits of that. Oh, I'm giving it away already. And it's the, the visible effects of that internal work, okay? So today we're looking at the invisible things that the Holy Spirit does to generate new life in us. And actually, we're going to take a look at four, four things, specific things the Holy Spirit does to generate new life in us. Next week is more of a, what he does to generate new life through us, okay? All right, so let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, the first thing, this is something that we've already kind of hinted on, talked about, is this, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. He loves to teach. He loves to reveal. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter is near the end. It's right after 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at the last verse. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21. All right. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The Bible says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by who? The Holy Spirit. All right. Now, Paul, or not, not Paul, Peter, what he's talking about in context, he's talking about the prophetic word of God and how it's like a light shining in a dark place when we pay attention to it. And that prophetic word is so reliable. It's so certain. It's more reliable than even an eyewitness account of things. The scripture points us to light, to truth. Now, in verse 21, the point that he's making, the reason why you can trust God's word so much is that prophecy never came by the will of man. So when you're reading like Daniel's prophecies, it, it didn't just come out... You know, Daniel didn't just one day say, you know what? I would really like my name to be in the Bible, so I'm just going to write a prophecy. No, that's, that's not how prophecy came about. It, how did it come about? According to this verse, it came about as holy men like Daniel, holy men of God spoke as they were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture was God-breathed, Spirit-inspired, And it's profitable for all these things. Now, the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, if we were to look at Scripture, yeah, we see Peter's name, we see John's name, we see Isaiah's name, and Jeremiah, and all these things. But Scripture was not authored by men. That's what Peter's trying to say. Scripture, the Bible, was authored by the Holy Spirit. 
And if you think about this, kind of draw it to its uh, conclusion here, Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 39, when he's talking to the Pharisees about how they study Scripture, but they've totally missed the point, he says, you know what, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the Scriptures that testify of me, right? That point to me. So if you think about this, the Holy Spirit authored Scripture and all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture that is inspired by the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. Do you know what? When the Holy Spirit writes a book, do you know who he's going to write about? He's going to write about Jesus. Yeah? When he inspires a prophet to, to reveal a, a, a prophecy or a vision, you know what that's really about? It's not about beasts and horns and, and crowns. It's about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role as a teacher is to lead us to Jesus. So, in, in I think it's uh, John chapter 16. Do we have that here? John chapter 16. No, let's go there. John 16. Let's go to John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. When you're there, say Amen. <laughs> John 16, verse 13, Jesus, you know, in his farewell discourse, man, the, the, the most prominent theme here is not just that he's coming in, but he's actually talking mostly about prayer and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, oh, he, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will tell you things to come. In other words, he, the Holy Spirit, what his, his primary role as teacher, you know, we talked about this last week, he's the teacher of righteousness, so to speak. Well, really, he's the teacher of Jesus' character. He's the teacher of truth, not just truth as a proposition, but truth as a person. He guides us into all truth, educating us about truth, but he's really ultimately leading us to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. When the Holy Spirit actively communicates with us, what he's trying to do is that he wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to know Jesus, trust Jesus, and receive Jesus. This is his primary role as teacher. But there's another one. He's also convicting us. Conviction is something else that this teacher brings about. Go with me. You're still in John 16. Go with me to verses 8 to 10. 8 to 10. This is similar to his teaching role. I would say, but it's, a, it's got a little bit more of an intense focus, maybe even a sharper edge to it, okay? Uh, the way that conviction works, I don't know if you've ever experienced conviction when somebody says something and you realize, oh, that's, that's totally me, <laughs> you know? And you realize, you know, what, what, what conviction does, it takes that teaching of truth and it personally applies it, kind of expose our sense, exposes our sense of lack and need, and here in chapter 16, verses 8 through 10, Jesus again talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when he has come, he will convict the world of three things. What do you see there in verse 8? He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you can kind of see now, oh, this is a sharper edge to the teacher, right? To the teaching role of the Holy Spirit. So according to this verse, what does the Holy Spirit prick our hearts about? Three things, sin, 
righteousness, and judgment. Let's keep reading why. What, what, what are the, what's so special about these three things? Verse 9, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, let's, let's chew on this just a little bit, because I'll be honest with you, for a long time, I had no clue why this was significant. And I, I'm not professing to know the, the full depth of that, but according to verse 9, what we do know is this, that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it's because they do not believe in me. In other words, sin is much more than what I do or don't do. It's whether I trust or don't trust. Yeah? Yeah, and the Holy Spirit, even when we're doing what we ought to do, He knows how to convict when we're not trusting as we ought to trust. Yeah. Of righteousness. Now, according to verse 10, it's because Jesus is going to the Father and we don't see him anymore. In other words, it's because he has ascended. And when, we, when he ascends, we know what he's up to. He's working in the, the holy place as our high priest. Uh, he's ministering his righteousness to us. And so we don't see him here. But what the Holy Spirit does is he causes us to know Jesus is there. <laughs> he causes us to lift up our eyes and realize, oh, he is doing something for me. So when he convicts us of righteousness, he's convicting us of the fact that Jesus is imparting his righteousness to us. And then of judgment, it's because the ruler of this world is judged. He's convicting us of judgment, not to say, ah, you are being judged. No, he's convicting us of judgment to realize that soon and very soon, we're going to see the king and the enemy of souls, he will be judged. Praise the Lord. Okay, <laughs> this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And someone once pointed out to me that sin, righteousness, and judgment when you think about these things and overlay them on the sanctuary, these are the very things that the sanctuary walks us through. Do you remember the, the three compartments or the three phases of the, the sanctuary? I mean, you've got your courtyard, right? Courtyard where the altar of sacrifice is and the labor for washing and stuff. And this was symbolic of Jesus' earthly ministry where he would serve as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Here in the courtyard, that's where sin's penalty is dealt with. And then moving forward, the high priest goes in and you've got your, your bread, your uh, candlestick, and also your um, altar of incense. And this is where righteousness is imparted to the believer. It's through the word of God. It's through the light of the Holy Spirit and, and through the righteousness of Christ that mingles with our prayers. This is where righteousness is imparted to the believer, where, where we not only deal with the penalty of sin in the courtyard, but also the power of sin in our lives. It's really powerful. And then the most holy place. You remember what's in the most holy place? It's, it's, it's an ark. It's the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's a very symbol of God's throne. And, and only once a year, the high priest would go in there. And it was on the day of, does anybody remember? The day of atonement that the high priest would go into the most holy place. And the people often consider that day a day of judgment. What was going on? What was being judged? The sins that were confessed all year long those were being judged. That was being dealt with so that as a result, when the high priest leaves the most holy place, sin's presence is utterly eradicated. 
It's beautiful. And, and what ensues thereafter is just this joyous celebration in the Jewish festivals and stuff. So we've got the courtyard, holy place, and most holy place dealing with sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know what's going on here. When Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit leads us on the path of the sanctuary. And what that really is, is a path to oneness with God. The Holy Spirit's role as teacher, the Holy Spirit's role to convict, is his role to lead us to oneness with God. Again, you're talking about the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the face of the dark, right, or the face of the waters. When there is nothing, he's creating something. When there is nothing, he's creating life. When there is nothing, he's teaching to reveal Jesus. When there is nothing, he's convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment to lead us to a oneness that was not previously existent, that seemed utterly impossible. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's powerful. I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I am thankful the Spirit convicts us of our own sin, of Christ's offered righteousness, and of Satan's final judgment with the intent of leading us to oneness with God. All right, two more things the Holy Spirit does on an invisible level. He not only is our teacher, he not only is the one who convicts, but he also seals us, okay? Sealing and security. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. You've got your Bible. Just go a little bit to the right from John. Ephesians chapter 1. And we, we've looked at this verse before um, in our series, but I want us to, to settle on this just a little bit longer. Ephesians chapter 1. What the Holy Spirit does, he not only teaches, he not only convicts, but he seals. When you're there, say, I'm there. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. We'll read 13 and 14. The Bible says this, In him, that's in Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, all right, so once you believed in Jesus, once you accepted the gospel, in whom, having believed, you were, what's the next word in your Bible? You were sealed with who? With the Holy Spirit of promise. This is awesome. Let me read verse 14 also. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? What in the world? Okay, so what does the Holy Spirit do when we believe? When we accept the gospel and receive Jesus for who he says he is, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He seals us. Now, a seal in Greek culture, that was a particular tool. It was something like a stamp or used a, a seal with a signet ring. It was used upon things or placed upon things to signify that document that uh, contract or whatever that is, that tomb, you know, like the, the tomb of Jesus was sealed with the Roman seal. That tomb, that whatever that thing was sealed, that belongs to me. Did you catch that? That belongs to me. In other words, the seal signifies ownership. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, who is sealed? Who is sealed by the Holy Spirit? We are, right? Those who believe in Jesus, those who put their trust in Jesus. You and I, when we trust in Jesus, we are sealed. That means that we belong 
to him. <laughs> That's why he says we're sealed to the Holy Spirit of promise. That is certain. That is a promise. Verse 14, who is the guarantee? Now, this is awesome. You know what a guarantee is? When was the last time you gave a guarantee or a down payment or earnest money, right? Maybe when you've bought something large, a, a car, a house, or whatever it is, right? You know what the function of a guarantee is? The function of a down payment is here's a little, the rest is surely coming. Catch this, okay? The Holy Spirit, He seals us, not with some literal tattoo or wax or whatever. No, His presence in our lives signifies to us that we belong to someone else. We belong to God alone, right? And He is the guarantee. He is a down payment of what precisely, according to verse 14? He was the guarantee of our inheritance, speaking of eternal life, right? Speaking of heaven and, and, and life to come in Jesus. He's a guarantee of our inheritance until, so when's the full, uh, you know, when's the full payment? Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're filled with the sealing presence of the Holy Spirit, you know what that is? That's a down payment of heaven. <laughs> his presence in your life and mine is just a little of heaven to assure us that the rest is just around the corner. It is yours. <laughs> By the way, heaven is much more than fruit, much more than clouds and harps and gold and things like that. Heaven is not just a place. It's experiencing the very presence of God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he fills you, seals you, He's saying, hey, wait, this is just the beginning. <laughs> Eternity is just around the corner. Man, as a guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit takes it upon himself to continually remind us that the rest is coming. I don't know if you've ever had a hard time believing that. I don't know if you've ever had a hard time uh, just kind of lifting up your eyes above the daily miasma of life. <laughs> The Holy Spirit's presence in your life, his, one of his roles is to lift up your eyes and say, hey, look, the rest really is coming. All right, so the Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit seals us and really secures us in a relationship with Jesus. And this last one is really connected to that. Go with me to John 14. Assurance and adoption, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, we're going back to John. Sorry, I should have had you keep a bookmark there. John 14, verses 16 through 18. And this is, for me, this is where it really gets good, okay? John 14, 16 to 18. The Bible says, and I will pray the Father. This is Jesus talking. Hey, I'm, I'm going to pray the Father. I'm going to ask the Father. What's going to happen? And he will give you another helper. Maybe your Bible says another comforter. This is where our sermon series title comes from. The coming of the comforter. And he will give you another helper that he may, I love this word, that he may abide with you forever. That he may abide with you. That means remain with you, stick with you, cling to you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you 
and will be where? In you. Now, this is amazing. Think about this. Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples. I think at this point it's 11 disciples. He's talking to these, these men who have been with him day in, day out, eating, sleeping with him. Okay, They've become his best friends. He has become their best friend. He's telling them right now, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving. And when I do, I'm going to send you another Another comforter. Because he was that comforter for them. I'm going to send you another helper. Verse 18, I love this. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Who is primarily responsible for allowing us to live in that reality that we are not orphaned? It's the Holy Spirit of truth. He is the one. He is the comforter whose forever abiding assures us that we are not abandoned. I love this. First John, so this is the Gospel of John. In First John chapter 4, notice how he continues this idea. But this we know, that we abide in him. Like he's trying to assure this generation of believers. Now John was the last living disciple. He was the last of the 12 to stick around. And so uh, believers were starting to wonder, wow, when John kicks the bucket, then what? You know, <laughs> yeah, well, What's going to happen to the rest of, of, of this whole movement? And John's trying to assure them, no, no, no. He abides in you. He rem- he's going to stick it out with you. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, for what reason? Because he has given us of his spirit. So the Holy Spirit, he is the one primarily responsible for us knowing that Jesus hasn't left us. That Jesus hasn't abandoned us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I love how simple that is, right? We don't have to uh, do some sort of pilgrimage on our knees to know that God abides in us. No, we just simply confess, oh wow, Jesus is who he says he is. (laughs) He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of my heart and yours. And when we know that of a certainty, we confess it with our mouth because we believe it in our hearts. When we do, he abides in us. He abides in us. And that, I love that. This abiding relationship is ours when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. In Romans chapter 8, oh man, do I have this on the screen? I don't. I'm sorry. Let's go there. Romans chapter 8. You got to see this. You got to see this and highlight this. So go to the two books over. You're in John. Go to Romans chapter 8. Remember, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he teaches us. He gives us information. He reveals Jesus to us. Yeah, he convicts us. Yeah, he pricks our hearts about sin, righteousness, and judgment. But now he seals us and then he assures us. Romans chapter 8, so powerful. If you're in the habit of highlighting, go ahead and get your pen moving here. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. Oh, man. (laughs) I'll start in verse 14. Okay, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of, of what? Of bondage again to fear? No, you didn't receive that. If you've ever felt bondage, if you've ever felt fear, that's not a gift from heaven. What is the gift from heaven? But you, verse 15, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic term for Papa, Daddy. 
Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, or maybe a better translation would be to our spirit, that we are children of God. Do you know the work of the Holy Spirit? To not just teach and reveal, to not just convict and, 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 and transform, to not just seal your heart, secure you to Jesus, but actually assure you of your adoption into the family of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. This assurance delivers us from the bondage of fear. This assurance delivers us from the fear of not knowing who we are or whose we are. I tell you what, sometimes life throws too many curveballs at you. At me, at us, we, we experience these things. We experience uh, uh, circumstances, things that are done to us, things that are done around us, or we even make decisions that cause a domino effect of things. That we, and we start to wonder, man, who am I really? Who do I really belong to? And we start to question whether or not we are gods. One of the Holy Spirit's primary works is to assure you through it all, that you are a daughter of God, that you are a son of God, that you wouldn't be held in bondage to this fear that maybe I'm not a child of God. The Holy Spirit wants to seal your heart today and assure you of this adoption that, no, you are mine and I am yours. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only leads us to a relationship with Jesus, but also gives us the constant assurance of Jesus' abiding presence. Our adoption into his family as sons and daughters. And, you know, I think it's 1 John chapter 3 that talks about even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. (laughs) I love that. Even if we're feeling like, ah, self uh, reproach and things like that, you know, God is greater than that voice too. Or maybe you know when, when the accuser of the brethren, he brings up all the dirt from your past. He says, man, how, how can you possibly be a child of God when you've done this, 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 and that? The Holy Spirit wants to come in like a flood. I love this. Isaiah 59, I uh, read this earlier this week. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord, what's he going to do? He's just going to kind of back off and say, yeah, that's true. Oh, man. <laughs> the accuser of the brethren, he, he, he does have a point. No, when the, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Holy Spirit lifts up a standard. Basically, he declares war. that's my child I've taken her she's got me I've got him the Holy Spirit raises up a standard against him and you know who wins right? (laughs) even if our hearts condemn us God is greater than our hearts in the next chapter of 1 John I think it's chapter 4 he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And I, this is so huge. I mean, this, this, this applies on a personal level. I don't know, maybe it's even a daily battle for you. And, uh, but I would also say this on an eschatological level. I know that's a big word. On an eschatological level in terms of end time things. You know, last week we were talking about the latter rain. And when the latter rain comes, the latter rain gives power to the preaching of the three angels' messages, right? Causes the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God, according to Revelation chapter 18. The latter rain not only, but let me say this, the latter rain not only gives power to the proclamation of the gospel, but also empowers us to cling to the gospel, especially just before the second coming. 
If you read Revelation, you, you get an idea that just before the second coming, there's, there's some, things are not necessarily going to get pretty. Right? Especially when you start reading the seven last plagues and the things that are going to happen to those who destroy the earth. What's really interesting, as I started studying this and as I've been reading this through, um, particularly there's a chapter in the Great Controversy, chapter 39. It's called The Time of Trouble and stuff. But when you, when you start getting a clear grasp of that, you realize that during the time of the seven last plagues, there, there will be so much turmoil on earth. But what most severely tries the people of God is not how much chaos there is out there, but they begin to feel as though, whoa, maybe I'm not on the right side. They begin to doubt their relationship with God. The most severe trial that the people of God go through during the seven last plagues is not what's taking place out there, but what is taking place right here. That's what is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Maybe you've heard that term from the, uh, I think it's Jeremiah chapter 50. And Jacob's trouble, what was Jacob's trouble? Uh, When you think about Jacob, he was experiencing this whole night of wrestling with God. And it wasn't because he was worried about Esau. It was suddenly because he was worried that his relationship with God was not intact, that he could not be blessed. Which is why the thing that comes out of his mouth as the day was breaking is, Lord, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And what was the ultimate blessing that God gave Jacob in his time of trouble? He gave him an identity. He says, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob, which literally means deceiver or heel grabber. He says his name and his whole past comes before him. But then God says, no, you will be called Israel, which means one who has power with God and prevails. The thing that breaks through in that night of wrestling is an identity that is secure in Jesus. I tell you what, the outpouring of the latter rain, yes, it will give power to the preaching of the gospel, but it will also give God's people power to cling to the gospel when the seven last plagues are being poured out. So friends, here's the the plea. (laughs) We ought not to wait for that time to seek the sealing and assuring presence of the Spirit. We ought to experience that now. Do you follow that? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's because of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we will be able to cling to the promises of God that we are His children, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And surely this verse will be true at that time, especially that when the enemy comes in like a flood, what will the Spirit of the Lord do? He will declare war. He will raise up the standards and say, no, that child is mine. <laughs> Friends, do you sense your need of the Holy Spirit today? Man, the the Holy Spirit who teaches, convicts, seals, and assures us. The Holy Spirit who does all of these things in us. Do you sense your need for the Holy Spirit today? If we ever needed the Lord before, how does that song? If we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need Him now to reveal Jesus to us, to convict us, to lead us to oneness with Him, to seal our hearts, to secure us to the vine, to cause us to be sure of an abiding relationship with Him. And now is the time to be filled with the Spirit. Now is the time to let God's Spirit teach us, 
to let God's Spirit reveal con- and convict and uh, to, to shift our lives, to hover over us so that He can create new life where there was no life before. Now is the time to acquaint ourselves with the promise of God and the presence of God. So why wait? <laughs> why wait? Why not ask Him today? and every day to teach you, convict you, to seal you, and assure you. Yeah. How many of you want that today? Yeah? Amen. Amen. You know, I want to um, make a s- simple appeal that for those of you who are seeking for the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to truly take over in your lives, we read it in John chapter 3 that if anyone is born of water and of the Spirit, they will see the kingdom of God. And if anyone is not, then he can't, right? And, uh, you know, I've been talking to our friend Amy. hope this is okay, Amy. Uh, we've been talking about baptism. And we've, we've set a date for August 22, right? God willing, August 22, we're going to find a spot on the South Platte River there, just near Deckers. And, um, and I just want to just open that invitation. I, I don't think Amy would mind if anybody else joined her in the water that day. <laughs> But uh, maybe you're listening on Zoom. Um, you know, if this is something that you realize, man, I want to be born of the, the Spirit, but, but I also need to be born of the water too. Maybe baptism was something you experienced as a young person and um, maybe you feel the need to re, uh, recommit or refresh that commitment, I should say. I don't know, whatever it is, why not? Why not, you know? If that's something that, that the Lord is laying on your heart, let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, we can make plans. Maybe August 22 isn't the right day. <clears throat> Maybe another day uh, is, is better. But the Lord will lead. And uh, one, one other simple invitation. You know, Jose mentioned this earlier, but beginning August 15, we're going to start a 40-day experience of praying together. Uh, we'll give you details about what that is, but one of the details is that if you sign up, we'll give you a little 40-day devotional book. And so we want to know how many books we should reserve. So if that's something you desire, we're actually sending out a text message. If you're not on our text loop, get on our text loop before 1 o'clock today because the text will be going out at 1 o'clock. And you can reply to that text message just to say, yeah, please save me a book. I want to, I want to be a part of that 40-day experience. All right. Hey, we're going to wrap things up. And Unless you had a song you'd like to sing? No? Okay. <laughs> awesome. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want... And when we look to the life of Jesus, we see how he promised another helper. And so we don't just want Jesus. We want the spirit of Jesus, Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, we want to give you the green light today. So yeah, please teach us. Reveal yourself to us. Please convict us. Lead us to that oneness with you we all long for. God, seal our hearts. Cause us to know that of a certainty we belong to you. Assure us of an abiding relationship with you, especially in the darkest of times, God. I pray, God, for each heart and each home that's represented here. You know exactly what ministry of the Holy Spirit is needed, and I just pray that we would not resist the infilling of your presence today and every day. 
Again, we lift up our friend Justin to you and ask that even now you would move upon his heart and body to heal, to cause him to recover. Thank you, Lord, for knowing all of our needs even before we've asked them. We surrender to you today in Jesus' beautiful name. We pray. Amen.